0: Hey, it's Tracy. Just a quick note before the episode starts. In this episode, none of us were in our normal recording spaces, so my sound starts out a tiny bit wonky, but I promise it sorts itself out pretty quickly. So thanks for bearing with us and enjoy the episode.
1: So we're all in the same state, uh, location geographically, state of being, state of wellness, state of
0: mind, mind, state of the union. No, no, not state <laughs> of the union. Actually, <laughs> I like our state of the union, state of reunion, because we're together. <laughs> I was in a relationship for a while where once a
1: month we would have the State of the Union and we would get, like, the beverage of our choice and just sit down and be like, okay, what's up? And talk about stuff. And it was never allowed to be an opportunity to just be angry. It was just supposed to be like, how are we? Are we okay? And it was, honestly, for the period we did that, the most healthy adult relationship I've ever been
0: in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. That's so smart. We love communication.
1: We We do. Actually, uh, that's why we have a podcast, and uh, that's why you're here, Jame. Actually, we're not even going to be subtle about this one. We're not going to wait to introduce you. Hey, I'm Rowan Hall. I have Babe 1 and Babe 2 with me. (laughs) It's (laughs) Jamie and Tracy Harrison. I'm so sorry, Tracy. You have to be Babe 2 because you're always
0: my Babe (laughs) 1. Okay, fair. Hi, everyone. I'm Tracy. I'm Babe number 2. I'm Jamie Harrison, and I'm Babe number 1. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.
1: Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the podcast, consider sharing your favorite listener legend with us. You can always email us at willingandfable at gmail.com. You can go onto our very cool website and fill out the contact form. Or you can just at us on all the social media at and Fable.
0: And a special big thank you to Sav and Anna M for becoming patrons on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Willing and Fable. We are so excited to have you as part of the Willing and Fable family.
1: Hey, new patrons. It's so cool because I don't know if y'all planned it, but I got notified about new patrons like first thing in the morning for the last two days and when I tell you that is just a delightful way to wake up.
0: Oh yeah, I like seeing the discord and all the different gifts everyone uses to welcome people.
1: I feel an immense amount of pressure to deliver a good gift when people join. And I think I I think I'm not doing
0: well oh, enough everyone. I'm so sorry. I rotate between <laughs> like 3. I've got my consistent ones that I use. And that's how I get around that. See, it's flavor of the mm-hmm. month. Whatever
2: uh, meme is hot and ready on my brain is what you're going to get as a welcome. So
1: <laughs> our so we all went out to dinner last night with Tracy and Jamie's family. And we, Tracy, Jamie, and I had a whole series of conversations that were entirely composed of TikToks. Absolutely. That no one else could participate in. Not one singular human being. And trying to explain TikToks off TikTok is lame
0: at it's best. It's embarrassing. Yes. I do it all the time. I'm not proud of it. It is truly a devastating experience.
2: So this kid really likes corn, uh, but they took it and then they made a little song out of it.
1: And then over the song, someone did this political video that's discussing the nuance of Miss misandry and how it it coincides with someone help me, I'm losing my train. <laughs>
2: And then someone stitched it with a dog, and that's the video I sent you.
0: (laughs) So anyway, we're so cool. Not only are we so cool, we have the coolest friends and people who support this pod. So if you want to support us, you should support the people who support our podcast.
1: And you can do that by shopping Greenleaf Geek. Our dear friend Leah gave us a special coupon code for our listeners for the advent calendars this year and they always sell out so long before christmas time so if you are thinking that you might still love any human being in your life by the time winter rolls around you should probably get on that now
2: (laughs) if you think there will be love in your heart come this december check out Greenleaf
0: geek (laughs) you are legally and contractually obligated
2: (laughs) if you want to continue to feel the emotion of adoration in your heart and soul.
0: (laughs) So if you want to check out Greenleaf Geek, you can use our code FABLEADVENT, that's F-A-B-L-E-A-D-V-E-N-T, no spaces, to get $5 off your adventure calendar. And they're so cool,
1: because it's not just fun little chocolates, it's dice sets, it's Uh, An original one-shot. It's all these surprise goodies that not even we are allowed to know about because we also have advent calendars. Yes, yeah. We're (laughs) getting some and
0: I'm so excited. (laughs)
1: Uh, And if you just want to go shopping uh, for all of your TTRPG needs, head over to Greenleaf Geek, the classic website, and use our code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Trizzy, that transition was so smooth. Thank you. And I said your part and you said my part. So do you want to keep being transition girl and I'll be whatever you want to normally call yourself?
0: Oh, great. We do have one more way that people can support the podcast, though, before we transition into the episode. Oh, how can they do that? They can support the podcast by going to their favorite local bakery, winking at the barista, and picking out their favorite treat for themselves and maybe a friend or two. But no matter what, we're happy to have you here. Where you can do that thing where
1: you order takeout and you ask for like four or five forks so that they can't possibly know
0: it's all for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is also a great way to support our show. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Directly impacts.
1: Oh, God. The energy is chaotic today. Jamie, why are you here? What have you brought for us in your infinite brilliance?
2: I have brought you another topic. That will become clear as I begin my story, but I'm Ooh. not going to show my hand just yet. We're going to dive into this story and it'll become apparent what I am discussing today, but I want to keep some mystery. Let's keep some mystery alive in the <laughs> world, Rowan.
1: Yeah, I love a- I love mystery. Let's do
0: it. So
2: aggressive. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. So the story begins on March 5th, 1495. After exchanging 170 florins and the ownership of a farm near her family's home, Lisa of the Giardini family's modest dowry was paid, and she was married to Francesco del Giacondo, a cloth and silk merchant. Now, it wasn't an extravagant or a multi-match, but her family name had lost some of the shine, and they were pretty well past their glory days, so overall it was a good match. In fact, there's reason to believe she actually married at least partially for love. She was the oldest of six siblings and lived just outside of Florence. She and Francesco had five children together, and she raised his son from a previous marriage, his late wife having passed shortly after childbirth. Upon the death of her husband, Francesco ensured she was taken care of and provided with money and jewels to live a life of comfort, actually writing the following in his will. Given the affection and love of the testador towards Mona Lisa, his beloved wife, in consideration of the fact that lisa has always acted with a noble spirit and has a faithful wife wishing that she shall have all she needs so overall she led what is thought to have been a comfortable and ordinary middle class life so why do we know so much about a seemingly average florentine woman from 500 years ago because in 1503 it's believed she sat for a portrait commissioned from leonardo da vinci so
0: before you go on I am I'm pleasantly surprised by the fact that apparently she had a very lovely marriage. And e- even in her husband's will, he was like, ah, I love her a lot. She's great. Here, give her good stuff. Yeah. Okay. I'm about
1: to hot David myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> Never once occurred to me that Mona Lisa might be a real woman. I know I have some of the scandals in my head. Uh, I'm going to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When Jamie Mm -hmm, talks about mm -hmm. other things, but it never once
0: occurred to me. (laughs) That she wasn't just a random model? Yeah, like I... (laughs) Wasn't just a random hot Lisa?
1: (laughs) Hot Lisa! I just assumed he hired,
0: like, a hot girl. And was like, yes, this is... Hot Lisa. (laughs) Because she was, like, the hottest lady of all time, right? Isn't that a thing that people have said about the Mona Lisa?
1: I mean, she boldly did no eyebrows
0: she boldly went where no person should go what what listeners can't see is how much jamie is smiling and shaking her head at every single word coming out of me and rowan's mouths right now <laughs> <laughs> all i told you i was gonna hot david myself <laughs> all right back to the expert tell us more about mona lisa I think I actually talk
2: about it, but spoiler alert, she probably did have eyebrows when it was originally painted. Jamie, I'm
1: so sorry that you constantly come in here as our art expert, and I am always the person who goes, I've never considered thoughts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's what we're here for. We're a conduit for learning. (laughs) So, according to Heidelberg University... That Leonardo painted such a work and its date were confirmed in 2005 when a scholar at the university discovered a marginal note in a 1477 printing of a volume by ancient Roman philosopher Cicero. So, dated October 1503, the note was written by Leonardo's contemporary, Agostino Vespucci. The note likens Leonardo to a renowned Greek painter, Apelles, who is mentioned in the text, but the important thing is that it states that Leonardo at the time was working on a painting of Lisa del Giocondo, So it has been pretty much confirmed. There was some doubt in the beginning, or historically, as to who the subject was, but it has been pretty well confirmed that it is Lisa del Giocondo. 2005 feels really late to have confirmed that. Yeah, this, this text was finally d- rediscovered. So it had been in, I think, some archives. And that note, that Marginal note was found that was the first real confirmation we had as the identity of the sitter.
0: So you said the sitter was Lisa Del Giacondo, but you started out talking about Lisa Gherardini. She married Francesco Del Giacondo.
2: Oh!
0: Her married name is Lisa Del Giacondo. Okay, now I'm with you. Thank you.
1: That feels like a really disproportionate O for, like, marriage. For
0: a very clear, (laughs) yeah, for a very clear train of thought. I don't know why I was like... I've solved the case. They're two different people. (laughs) Um, It's
2: actually thought that her husband is the one who paid Leonardo da Vinci for the rendering to celebrate the birth of their second child. That was nice as a gesture as that is. She would never end up receiving the painting as da Vinci still considered it unfinished three years later and would continue working on the piece for years to come. It would actually stay with him for the rest of his life.
1: Okay, so in my family, when women have babies or adopt as frequently happens in my family they get jewelry that's just the rule um Mm -hmm. when you make or acquire a child you get jewelry uh if someone commissioned a painting so that i could have it after having a child and the artist was like "Mm, mm,"
2: i would have i would throw mutiny absolutely not Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of us sent you rowan a tiktok that was basically like, why would I want to have a baby and be pregnant? Why would I make bones I cannot keep?
1: <laughs> Funny you bring that up, because that lives rent-free in my head. I think about it at least once a week.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I feel like if you're giving up bones you have made, jewelry like the least you could ask exactly. for. Exactly.
1: Paintings by world-renowned artists are the least we can
2: expect. Mm-hmm. That's so many bones we gave away. <laughs> <laughs> 200-something bones, one painting, make I the mean, math add
0: up. Gave away, or in the case of a lot of people in Rowan's family, willingly took on responsibility for <laughs> it. Right, <laughs> right. So Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm.
2: The work is known in Italian as La Gioconda, meaning gioconde, happy or jovial, or literally the gioconde one, which is a pun on the feminine form of Lisa's married name, giocondo. In French, the painting goes by the variant La Joconde, again playing off of her original married name. It has been the painting described by John Litchfield as the best known, most visited, most written about, most sung about, most parodied work of art in the world. But why is the painting so renowned? What makes it such a masterpiece? And are we sure we know the identity of the sitter? Yes, we do. It is <laughs> almost 100% Lucy <Lisa> <laughs> Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> we'll talk about other theories. So before we answer all of these questions, who was the artist? Leonardo was born April 15th, 1452, to Monsieur Piero Fruosino di Antonio da Vinci, a Florentine legal notary. His mother was an orphaned girl, Caterina de Mio Lippi. And I apologize, my Italian is... uh,
0: Mm, It's not great. I was sitting here very impressed. We were both sitting here so impressed. We can't ever promise accuracy, but we can promise that we'll try. So, Leonardo's full name is Leonardo de Sir Pierre da Vinci,
2: meaning Leonardo, son of Messer Piero from Vinci. The inclusion of the title Sir indicated that Leonardo's father was a gentleman. So, he was born in the town of Vinci, just outside of Florence, Italy. And not much is actually known about his younger years. What is known is that despite being a polymath who excelled at both mathematics, science, and art, he received only a basic and informal education in vernacular writing and reading and mathematics, possibly because his artistic talents were recognized so early, and his family instead focused their attentions on his artistic skill.
0: Mm. Quick, Quick question. What is vernacular writing? What does that mean specifically? Yeah, so rather than um, being
2: trained in, um, say, Latin, he was Mm -hmm. trained in the common speak. Vernacular would just mean um, the common Italian. Okay. So he and his family moved to Florence, and at the age of 14, Leonardo became a garzone, which is a studio boy. And he was in the workshop of Andrea del Verrocchio, who was the leading Florentine painter and sculptor of his time. He was apprenticed by age 17 and remained in training for seven years. Other famous painters who apprenticed in the workshop or were associated with it include Ghirlandaio, who would later apprentice Michelangelo, and Botticelli, who was famous for painting The Birth of Venus.
0: Powerhouses.
2: (laughs) Yeah. What a time. What a time to be alive in Florence. When she said studio
1: boy, did anyone else picture Robin Wright going, oh, fun boy.
0: (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) I do now. (laughs) Princess Bride references all day, every day. That's all we do here. Welcome mm. to Princess Bride podcast,
2: Willing and Fable, a Princess Bride podcast. Hand me that paintbrush.
1: Actually, one of our patrons did call us Willing and Fraser after our Brendan
2: they Fraser did, and episode, I loved and it. It. so it's such an honor. <laughs> it's over. Fast forward to 1503, and Leonardo, having left Florence three years earlier to work for Treasury Borgia, has since left Borgia's service and returned to Florence. Okay. Late that year is when Leonardo begins work on a portrait of Lisa Del Giocondo, the model for Mona Lisa. He would continue to work on that painting for many years, some estimate up to ten years.
0: Ten years on one painting? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: He never considered the work finished. I know I am
1: filled with the audacity today, because I'm sitting here thinking of all the things I've accomplished in ten years, going... Leonardo da Vinci and his one. Yeah, it is
0: true. It's the only thing he did in his entire life that we can look at yeah. and be impressed by. So, <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so one of the most famous mm-hmm. people on the planet,
1: and his one piece of art that
2: is one of the most famous yeah. pieces on Remarkably the planet. Disappointing in every other aspect. Absolutely of
0: his life. didn't create uh-huh. any cons- conceptual work. No <laughs> mathematics. No contributions to anatomy. Just just no. the one piece. Super real bum. <laughs> Anyway, in 1516,
2: Leonardo enters the service of King Francis I of France, and he's given the use of a manor house near the king's residence at the Royal Chateau d'Ambrose. Leonardo died at that location on the 2nd of May, 1519, at age 67, possibly of a stroke. His work was renowned and his legacy impactful to this day. He was known to be affable, generous, and kind. He was well-loved and respected by his contemporaries. And in terms of what he looked like, Wikipedia describes him saying that portraits indicate that as an older man, he wore his hair long at a time when most men were cropped short or reaching to the shoulders. While most men were shaven or wore close cropped beards, Leonardo's beard flowed over his chest.
1: Okay, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. If some rich person or royal wants to let me live on their property, I promise to be unfashionable, unkempt. And die there.
0: Yeah, I also will throw in. I'm willing to be affable and and generous. And I could finish at
1: least one painting for at sure. At least
0: one. We we can promise. I one. will be uh
2: unfashionable, unkempt, friendly, and I'll get done one piece of art in exchange for a chateau. <coughs> Grab this deal, people. It's not going <laughs> to last long. Jamie, don't forget, you do have to die there. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, <laughs> gotta die somewhere. <laughs> So his clothing was described as being unusual in his choice of bright colors, and at a time when oh, most- can't do it. Yeah. Mm, that's the caveat. Oh, I'm starting to get you. I'll, I'll wear bright colors for a chateau. Uh, at a time when most mature men wore long garments, Leonardo's preferred outfit was the short tunic and hose generally worn by younger men. Uh, and actually, the image of Leonardo that has been recreated in the statue of him that stands outside of the Uffizi Gallery reflects this. So- I actually included a photo. If you scroll down uh, a little bit, you'll see there's a statue of Leonardo da Vinci outside of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence based on the contemporary descriptions of what he looked like.
0: Look at those leggings! Look at those flirty calves! (laughs) His dogs are barking. This is so cool. It looks like it's a marble statue. He's got Mm -hmm. a fun, poofy little hat. His calves are out for days. Uh, It's pretty scandalous. Yeah, he's got
1: calves and actually uh, the way the marble is marbled uh it looks like his legs have little hairs it does it does look like he has leg hairs
0: (laughs) his his feet are just out there for free does he have it looks like he has sandals on yeah but his toes are out no free feet pics leonardo (laughs) only free feet pics for leonardo he looks like a a lovely gentleman i want to be his friend Uh,
1: i feel like he'd be pretty judgmental of me i don't seek his friendship he's also got
0: quite the curly beard which i i appreciate oh yeah i love his his vibe his hair and his beard are like the same length i love i love that it's
2: like he dressed in the style of younger men like hello me trying to be a gen z like it's it transcends boundaries i love it
0: (laughs) again give me a chateau i'll dress like a toddler i have no problems if you give me my own chateau
2: yeah i'll be an unfashionable unkempt a uh, friendly artist who makes one painting dressing well underneath their age, and then I will die if you give me a chateau for free. That's queer culture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is my hint hint about a possible rumored origin of the Mona Lisa, which is I've now just learned is incorrect.
2: Oh, we'll talk about that. But what do we know about his relationships? So court records show that in 1476, when he was 24 years old, that he and three other young men were charged with sodomy in an incident involving a well-known male sex worker, Mm -hmm. sometimes referred to as a male model. The charges were dismissed for lack of evidence, and there's speculation that the Medici pulled some strings to make that happen. Okay. Okay. So despite leaving many writings for us, Leonardo very rarely wrote anything personal and never indicated any romantic interest. He never married, and it cannot be stated with certainty that he had a sexually intimate relationship with any person, male or female. While the biography written about him near his life doesn't mention any gay relationships, other more modern biographers do believe he was gay. There's debate about whether he was gay and in addition as to whether or not he was celibate. In my research, I learned that some scholars believe he was too intimidated after that trial in his youth to pursue a homosexual relationship, while others believe he did continue to pursue relationships, but the truth is we'll never
0: really know. And on top of that, there just wasn't the same words for these things in those days as there are now, so it's hard to to give someone an identity nowadays that they didn't even have words for in the time.
1: Well, since we're in the digital age, if we require literal papers – to prove that you had any kind of relationship ever with the sparsity of the literal letters that I've wrote. I don't think I have a single friend as far as the historical record goes.
0: (laughs) I think historical records, you, Rowan, might be my only friend, given the letters I've written, the grin on her face. (laughs) I'm honored. So who were some of Leonardo's friends? Uh,
2: he spent a notable amount of time with his pupils, Francesco Melzi and Gian Giacomo, nicknamed Salai or Il Salino, meaning little devil. Oh, so good. <laughs> That's so good. Gian Giacomo Capriati del Oreno, who entered his Leonardo's household in 1490 at the age of 10, and Count Francesco Melzi, the son of a Milanese aristocrat who was apprenticed to Leonardo by his father in 1506, joined at the age of 14, And remained with Leonardo until his death 13 years later.
0: Ooh, short life. Yeah, that's what, 27? Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Wolf. While Gian Giacomo was important to Leonardo, he wasn't without faults. And Leonardo is said to have called him a thief, a liar, stubborn, a glutton. Mm. But despite all of that, he remained with Leonardo and worked with him for almost 30 years.
0: I kind of love the idea of the buddy cop comedy where it's the person you roast the hardest that sticks with you for through thick and thin. I would watch at least three it. seasons of that. Minimum. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we can include
2: Melzi, who accompanied Leonardo in his final days. He wrote actually to Leonardo's brothers when Leonardo passed away, describing Leonardo as like an excellent father to him. Aww. When Leonardo passed away he did bequeath the Mona Lisa to Gian Giacomo. It's thought it could possibly have been a a second version of the piece with the same name, but even still, it was a valuable piece that he gifted to Gian Giacomo.
1: Justice for Lisa! Give the girl her painting!
0: I only get mad about old stuff. (laughs) It's the only way to stay sane. So let's break down the visuals. What makes
2: Mona Lisa so special? First and foremost, the composition technique is highly regarded for its modern framing. And the three-quarter half-body positioning
0: of, of a portrait, it looks like something that could be painted now. You might know this more than I do, but is, was that not normal? Was it like just very straight on towards the viewer was the typical portrait? Uh, actually, so either straight on or full
2: uh, profile was very common oh. at the time. Oh, for, uh, Profile portraits were for a very long time the standard in portraiture.
1: Oh, I strongly dislike that. I like myself better in three quarters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It depends, though. In ancient Rome, my nose would have been uh, just the Mm -hmm. peak of male beauty. I just realized it's not a female beauty standard. (laughs) I would have been a very handsome Roman man. That was funny to watch happen, honestly.
1: (laughs) The look that came over your face. (laughs) I love your nose. In profile three quarter and straight on. Thank you. That's almost all the views. (laughs) Oh, wait. Is there another one? Did I leave? I also love your nose from behind.
2: I love your nose from three-eighths perspective.
0: Top down, bottom up, from behind, all of it. I'm sorry. Please tell us more about why this
2: painting is so special. Framing Lisa with her eyes facing forward turned mostly to the front was really unique for the time. There's also some more subtle optical effects created by the positioning of the shadows around the eyes and mouth that give her that knowing smile. This expression demonstrates Leonardo da Vinci's scientific and anatomical knowledge. So Mona Lisa wasn't actually painted on canvas, which is what was typically used for most artworks at the time. Leonardo instead painted this piece on poplar wood panel. Hmm. Oh, a single, a single wood panel? Yeah, a single wood panel panel, which might seem strange, but remember, Leonardo wasn't just a painter, he wasn't just a scientist, he was a sculptor and an artist who had painted on large walls of plaster throughout much of his career. So switching to a wooden panel was uh, a little easier for him than it would be for other artists at the time who were used to working exclusively on canvas. So recent research shows that the Spolvero uh, drawing transfer technique was used for this portrait. So this technique involves the method of transferring a drawing or a design from a cartoon, which is the, uh, the large base drawing used to transfer to finished pieces. So that was transferred to the prepared surface of a canvas, a panel, or a fresco. Holes are then pricked along the outlines of that design, which is placed over the surface to be painted. And we can actually see some of those holes in um, x-rays that have been done of the Mona Lisa, which is proof that a preparatory drawing was used and it wasn't just done directly onto the poplar. Really?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is. I mean, I don't know why that's surprising. I think there's something about it that feels spontaneous in the posing, which obviously, I guess the posing in the background, it feels like you're out in nature with your friend doing a painting Mm -hmm. of her. Clearly, he spent years and years and years on it. That wasn't the case. But it it does kind of surprise me that there was a a cartoon that was then transferred. I imagine
1: him getting what I would consider to be like his Rothko, his Cy Twombly on, where he's just doing these big circles and like laying out her face. I know it's so
2: wrong, Jamie. I'm so sorry. There are two wolves inside <laughs> one who loves Rothko and one who hates Cy Twombly. <laughs> And this is not the place for me to talk about how much I hate Psy Twombly, so I won't.
0: But if you want to learn more about her love and hatred of these artists, you can join us on our Discord. She is on there. (laughs) And you can ask for her opinions on Rothko and Cy Twombly.
2: I'll get her to go off for you. The background is an example of sfumato from the Italian sfumare, which is to tone down or to evaporate like smoke. Mm
0: -mm. What a cool word.
2: Right? The use here of the shading is uh, done with thin washes or glazes of paint, and it produces a soft, imperceptible transition between colors and tones with very subtle gradations without harsh lines or borders from light to dark areas. So quoting from Science ABC, Starting with dark undertones, da Vinci created the illusion of three-dimensional features through layers and layers of thin, semi-transparent glazes. He used darker hues to highlight features and boundaries of the motif. Using this technique aroused the interest of the art community in Paris and was hailed as a pioneering innovation in painting. One of the most popular reasons for the worldwide appeal of Mona Lisa is her smile. Da Vinci used optical illusion to create a unique smile through perspective and shadow work. He painted the Mona Lisa in such a way that the eyes of the Mona Lisa fall directly into the viewer's focus, while the lips fall just below the periphery of vision. So whenever the viewer looks into the eyes of Mona Lisa, the mouth falls so that the features of the mouth are somewhat less pronounced. Together with a small shade of the cheekbone, this makes the mouth look like a smile. So when you look at her and you look at her eyes, she appears to be smiling. When you look at her mouth, she doesn't.
0: That's so cool. That mm-hmm. is brilliant.
2: Yeah. Can we quickly say how small this painting is? It's actually it's a lot smaller than people expect it's two feet six inches by one foot nine inches.
0: Wait, that's really small. Yeah. It's really
2: small. Yeah.
0: I think I have paintings in my house bigger than that.
2: Absolutely I've done paintings for you in your house bigger than that.
1: <laughs> I I think it's just worth note because I think of the Mona Lisa as being larger than life. You know,
2: it grows in your mm-hmm. estimation. And she's little mm-hmm she's very small that's actually one of the things the, a common comment upon seeing her for the first time is how small she is and james
1: well you might know this and for anyone who's wondering you know the mona lisa will be up on our instagram or you know everywhere else um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much of the golden quality of the painting comes from how old it is
2: so that's a good question, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But oh. the uh, the varnish. So when you create an oil painting, you have to seal it, and you seal it with varnish. Now, the varnishes that were commonly used at the time, they didn't have any way of creating a varnish with longevity based on the natural materials that they had. So over time, the varnish has yellowed. So a little bit later on, we'll talk about what she could have possibly looked like when she was originally created, but. It's significantly different from the colors we see now due to the aging of the varnish. Thank you. You always Mm -hmm. deliver. So let's talk about what she's wearing. (gasps) Oh my god, fashion. So supporting the theory that she was commissioned to celebrate the birth of a child, the painting was commissioned to celebrate the birth of a child, Lisa is wearing a veil. Bruno Martin, an expert in the Louvre, believes this is a guanello, which was traditionally used by women while pregnant or just after giving birth even though Lisa was known to have owned jewels, she's dressed rather simply. This is what da Vinci had to say in his treatise on painting, which was published long after his death, on the subject of fashion. As far as possible, avoid the costumes of your own day. Costumes of our period should not be depicted unless it be on tombstones, so that we may be spared being laughed at by our successors for the mad fashions of men, and leave behind only things that may be admired for their dignity and beauty. (laughs)
0: <laughs> all of us on this call have have elements of our clothing that is not necessarily timeless. And I love that for us.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: excuse me. I think a black T-shirt is very timeless. Okay. All right. So just,
0: just Babe 1 and Babe 2 in mm-hmm. in our, our fun, my witchy clothing. Jamie's got glasses half the size of her head and mm-hmm. earrings from Lady Castle score that go down her shoulders. Yeah.
1: By getting myself out of that group, I also
2: was like, not the fashionable (laughs) (laughs) you're timeless so that your successors may not laugh at your mad fashions in all seriousness though that is pretty solid advice (laughs) it is really good now to answer your question from before her colors weren't as muted as they initially appear to us today so as i said the varnish used to coat the painting has yellowed over time There's also been warping of the board as well as other factors that have caused the paint to crack and discolor. So how do we get an idea of what she may have looked like originally? Well, we can compare the Mona Lisa to a version known as the Prado Mona Lisa, which gives us an idea of what the lady originally looked like. So quoting Wikipedia, the Prado Mona Lisa is a painting by the workshop of Leonardo da Vinci and depicts the same subject and composition as Leonardo's better known Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. The Prado Mona Lisa has been in the collection of the Museo del Prado in Madrid, Spain since 1819, but was considered for decades a relatively unimportant copy. Following its restoration in 2012, however, the Prado's Mona Lisa has come to be understood as the earliest known studio copy of Leonardo's masterpiece. I didn't even know that existed. And I included a photo. If you scroll down, you can see what the colors originally looked like. (gasps)
0: Go, Tracy, go. This is so so different. It's vibrant. It's got blues and reds. The background's a lot more blue and yellow, and her dress is like this gorgeous red gown with a sort of either deep blue or black overgown. You can see the thinness of the veils of fabric. She also has eyebrows. Okay, kind of. Barely. If you zoom in,
2: you can see them. They're very thin, but they're there.
1: It's funny. There is something about this that even though it is better than I could ever possibly paint, I still... I'm like, mm, it's it doesn't have quite the je ne sais quoi of the original. Because this was a student painting, mm-hmm.
2: correct? Mm-hmm. This was a student in Leonardo's workshop.
1: But, oh my God, the folds of fabric and all the colors. Mm-hmm. The
0: thinness of the fabric is what gets to me.
1: Yeah, that see-through veil that still ha- somehow mm-hmm. exists. It is gossamer thin. She has ringlet curls.
2: I never knew that. So why didn't this one age in the same way the other one did? So it did. It was restored. So what that means is the varnish, the varnish was removed, the paint, you know, corrected, the cracks filled in. So there is a bit of controversy over whether or not Mona Lisa should get the same treatment. Uh, There's the idea of it comes down to what is the art now as it aged. Does restoring it take away its history? Does it change the understanding of the piece?
0: I'm curious what you guys think. I have a, an opinion on this.
1: One day, when 500 years have gone by and I'm not looking my best, I hope that someone will restore me. Uh, an expert, ideally.
0: Um, yeah, I I think I'm of the team. I would love to see it restored and brought to what the original artist wanted to portray. But I know Jamie and I have off, clearly off podcast had this conversation a few times. And and it's Mm -hmm. so interesting to hear your perspective of what people say, when having this conversation.
2: Yeah, I think there are, on its surface, it seems like, a, at least to me, a pretty clear answer of yes, you should restore it, until you start to dive into what some of the implications are, especially in the context of this is, this painting has a history and has a story. And are we stripping that if we change it? On the flip side, Leonardo da Vinci and the artists of his time did not have access to the materials that wouldn't age. And was it their intention that 500 years from now their painting would look so drastically different? Most likely not. So are we honoring the artist by restoring it to its original vision? Potentially. If, however, it's restored, we do have to then say this has lost the sole hand of the artist. Another hand has now worked on this piece. What does that mean for the piece? That's kind of up to everybody to interpret themselves, but it is a consideration. So, I don't have a clear answer in my mind of whether or not it should be restored. I could see an answer for both sides personally, though I'm so curious. I'm so curious what it looks like if it had if it gets to be restored. So. not to
1: be ignored also, so many paintings have been badly restored, not so many. It comes up in the news, yeah, every so yeah. often that something has been just cataclysmically destroyed. <laughs> But do you ever just think, like, eh, it's okay for something to age? Like, uh, eh, we're all going to turn to dust. It's okay for something to t- turn to dust. Mm-hmm.
0: But, but we have the means of allowing that to not happen. And we know the history of the painting. So we're not only getting the history of the painting because of the cracks in it. So I'm of team. I want to see it restored. That's where I land.
1: Jamie, is the Mona Lisa one of those paintings where – Like the museum, when they go to it, there's like painting dust collecting in the bottom of the frame or what have you because it's disintegrating and flaking off of itself. You know, there are a lot of famous old paintings
2: where they talk about that. So I haven't done any research on that specifically, but I imagine it's being restored at least to keep it at its static level. It's just do you do any proactive restoration to take it back to a different version? You know, there's like uh, maintenance restoration and then there's removing the varnish and and changing it back to its original state if that makes sense it
1: would be cool to see those two hung together Mm,
2: mm -hmm. that would be interesting hey hey Louvre, i have an idea (laughs) (laughs) i know you're listening contact us (laughs) so there is a theory that mona lisa is actually a self-portrait of da vinci the University of Illinois researchers used facial recognition software to analyze the Mona Lisa's smile around 2005. This, the facial recognition software used by the professor leading the project and his students indicated a 60 to 40 probability the painting is of a female. So it's 60% more likely that the painting is a female, 40% likely that it's a male. So it doesn't prove anything, but it does cast doubt on the theory that this is a self-portrait. This, combined with all the information we have on Lisa Gelcondo, does point to the idea that she is the sitter of this mm. portrait.
1: Why do people think it's a self-portrait? Just for the, the lols?
2: There's been some comparisons to Leonardo's face compared to Mona Lisa, and there are some similarities. So it was Leonardo was known for being mischievous. Some thought maybe it was his version of a prank, or maybe more. Maybe it was a gender identity expression that he used in a time when he couldn't really express himself other ways. There are some reasons to think there may be some validity to this theory, just not enough compared to all the evidence that Lisa is the sitter Hmm. to outweigh it. Hmm. So what happened to Mona Lisa after Leonardo da Vinci's death? It was left to Salai, or Gian Giacomo, and eventually it was kept at the Palace of Fontainebleau until Louis XIV moved it to the Palace of Versailles, where it remained until the French Revolution. After the French Revolution, the painting was moved to the Louvre, but spent a brief period in the bedroom of Napoleon in the Tuileries Palace in 1797. Then after that is when it went on permanent display at the Louvre.
0: Okay, so in like the 1800s is when it went to the Louvre? Around then, mm-hmm. There is a pretty prominent story
2: relating to the Mona Lisa. Picture this, it's 1911. Okay. Up until this point in time... Mona Lisa's not that well-known by the public. However, in August of 1911, the painting was stolen from the Louvre.
1: Yes, art heist,
2: go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It wasn't known right away that the painting was stolen because there was some confusion as to whether it was being photographed somewhere, if it was taken for restoration work of some kind. Uh, So later, once it was confirmed that the Mona Lisa was actually stolen the Louvre closed to investigate. The French poet Guillaume Apollinaire came under suspicion, and he was actually arrested and imprisoned. And he implicated his friend, Pablo Picasso, who was no. brought in for questioning. What? However, both were exonerated. The real culprit was actually a Louvre employee. His name was Vincenzo Perugia. And he was someone who helped construct the glass case that went around the painting So he carried out the theft by entering the building during regular hours, hiding in a broom closet, and then walking out with the painting hidden
0: under his coat once the museum closed. All right. Every D&D player out there, take note. This is how you do a a heist. This
1: is how you do it. You just build the glass case and walk out under your coat. Ugh, there's so much DNA in there. Yeah. God, Mm. I want to be a cat burglar so bad. I want to be an art thief. (laughs) I want to wear the stripes.
0: I want to wear the beret. You have strong art thief energy, uh, parentheses, affectionate.
1: Thank you, <laughs> Helen Mirren as an art thief. Yes. She did
0: some TV show with that.
1: Uh, Just picture you doing the weird like thief walk. <laughs> of 100%. But yeah. can you picture mm-hmm. Pablo Picasso doing it? I mean, I guess I know he was exonerated, but come on.
2: An alternate reality where he actually did steal the Mona Lisa.
1: Amazing. I'm imagining... There's a a portrait of him where he has his hands and then baguettes on the table, so it looks like the baguettes are his fingers. So I'm imagining him stealing it with baguette fingers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, so why why did this man steal the Mona Lisa? He was uh, he identified himself as an Italian patriot, and he thought that the painting should have been returned to an Italian museum. He may have been motivated by an associate who created copies of the original work, and he was thinking that
0: those would increase in value after the painting's theft.
1: Ooh, it's a good scheme.
0: It's a good scheme, but he's really pretending it's all about noble pursuits, and he's like, "Mm, actually, also money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the capitalism. So how much would it be worth today? You said back in its time it was worth 200000 Tracy needs
1: this information yes. so that I can steal it and the copies that she makes can be s- sold. Stop sorry, saying sorry. our plans. Stop saying our plans. I w- for legal reasons and tax purposes, this is a joke.
2: This is a joke. <laughs> Especially to Louvre employees listening. This, this
0: is a joke. It's, it's a goof. Try to enter the Louvre and they're like, oh, it says you're not allowed in for some reason. <laughs> So weird. Her passport gets flagged immediately as soon as we try to go to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing: we have
1: so many podcast episodes where we're like, we think artists deserve money.
2: Um, so I don't think art thief will really fly. Yeah. To answer your question, as of today, the Mona Lisa is believed to be worth more than 867 million, taking into
0: account inflation.
1: Eh, it's not worth stealing, Trace. It's not enough.
0: How much money do you make that we can afford to just pass up $867 million? How much money do
1: you make that you can afford not to steal
0: the Mona Lisa?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you might be asking, why is the Mona Lisa so famous? Oh my gosh, Jamie, thank you so much. Why is the Mona Lisa so famous? I was just about to ask. Because it is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I really wasn't expecting that to be the answer. It's just – it
2: is just famous because it's famous? It's kind of one of those things where it got famous and then that fame snowballed and it just sort of became famous for being famous. That's not to negate all of the skill that went into it. It is a truly masterful painting that was revolutionary for its time. But it also was just at the right place, at the right time, with the right people – to gain even more popularity.
0: Are you telling me the Mona Lisa is the OG influencer? <gasps> She's not not. Oh my god. That's a great way to describe it. As Alicia
2: Zelzasko says in her Britannica article, although the Mona Lisa is undoubtedly good art, there is no single reason for its celebrity. Rather, it is hundreds of circumstances, from its fortuitous arrival at the Louvre, to its myth-making of the 19th century, to the endless reproductions of the 20th and 21st centuries, that have all worked together with the painting's inherent appeal to make Mona Lisa the world's most famous painting ever.
1: I know I'm a contrarian jerk, but the second you said the most famous painting ever, I was like, there's gotta be a
0: more famous one. I literally can't think of any other painting that might be as famous as the Mona Lisa other than Starry Night.
2: Maybe The Last Supper, which is
0: also Da Vinci. (gasps)
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good
1: one. I think you might be right. I do love to make The Last Supper my Zoom background on really inopportune Zoom calls. Because then you are in the position of Jesus Christ. I was going to ask, who do you sit as? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Of course. Would now be a bad time to admit that, like, the Mona Lisa, not
0: my favorite. No, I don't. I don't think it's a bad okay. time. It, it was really fun going to the Getty Museum with you, Owen, because I – like, we both got really excited about the kind of romantic and Baroque period where they are really into painting Greek and Roman mythology. Like, that was like – we were like, oh, my God, look at the little dimples on this nymph's butt. This is so detailed. This is so fun. And then I go to museums with <laughs> Jamie, and it's a totally – like, you've been so immersed in this beautiful art for so long through all of your art school and the artwork that you do that now you're – you're less enamored with the true technical beauty of a piece and more with the conceptual pieces. So that's where, you know, you'll take me into a room and explain Rothko to me. And I just am like, can we go back to the nymphs, please?
2: I think there is a lot to appreciate about technical skill. I am of the mindset that technical skill can be learned by anyone. Now, how quickly you learn is based on your aptitude. For example, could I learn calculus? Yeah, probably if I sat down and spent the time on it. I'm not going to. And I'm not going to learn it nearly as fast as somebody who has a mathematic mindset. But so I do think anybody can learn the techniques to painting. So what's impressive to me is when somebody thinks it away I've never seen. I don't know how you teach Mm. imagination or creative thinking. You kind of can't. That's a little bit more inherent to a person. I'm picking
1: up what you're throwing down. So
2: that's when I go to museums. I, I have a lot more interest in looking at unique concepts in painting. I think the Baroque and the Renaissance is beautiful, but a lot of work was commissioned by the uh, the church or by wealthy patrons. So even the secular art that you see is still very much, here's Lisa Gelcondo, here's a famous Florentine merchant. There was a hierarchy in art uh, for a long time, and I, you could even argue that there still is some today, where... Historical representations or representations of historical events were considered some of the top, most revered pieces of art. So that's where you'll see, and this is true a little bit later on past the Renaissance, but you would see paintings of, I'm going to imagine what the story in the battle at Troy looked like. And you'll see hundreds of figures in a complex scene. That is what was considered to be the the height of sophistication because it's taking the technical skill and it's creating an event that didn't actually exist. And how would you imagine it? At the bottom of the list were um, still lifes, then landscapes, then genre paintings, something like that, but lower on the list. And genre paintings would be what's considered like everyday life. So it's where you'll see paintings of like somebody milking a cow or of, you -hmm. know, women, there's some beautiful paintings of like women getting water from a river nearby. Some of those everyday depictions were seen as less impressive. But here's the thing.
1: I can be bought. I can be bought. If someone wants to Medici me, I will make whatever art they want to see all
0: gosh darn day. hmm hmm And I'll smile while doing it. <laughs> and we'll, we'll live in our French chateau with our silly little outfits. Yeah. Until 67
1: exactly. I'll do it <laughs> how you want it is all I'm saying. <laughs> but no, you're right. I... I 100% get what you're saying because I think that that's very similar to what it's like going through museums with my parents who also Mm -hmm. are very highly educated
2: in the arts. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, my first and foremost rule about art at museums, I've had some people ask me, like, how do I appreciate art? How do I – you know, what should I look for when I go to a museum? And my answer was always – you like what you like, like whatever you like is valid. If you walk in and you see a side twombly and you think that's amazing, awesome. Good for you. I vehemently disagree, but that's okay. Cause that's just my opinion and my taste. And you are completely valid to have your own opinion and your own taste. So I just want to say, while I'm giving my opinions and my thoughts on what I think about art. That's not to say that it's the only way to think about it. Your own opinion is completely valid. And as long as you're enjoying what you're looking at, fair.
1: I had the most interesting discussion with my friend Trevor the other day. He's getting his master's in writing at NYU, and he was talking about how one of the things he really had to learn when giving criticisms, like Mm -hmm. in class when everybody's kind of collaborating, is that you you cannot give critiques based on your own taste. You have to identify what the artist is going for Mm
2: -hmm. and then –
1: put your kind of critiques in line with that. Like you started here and I think this is what you're going for. And if that is, by this point, it seems like you veered away from Mm. your original vision or what have you. And and I so agree with that and had never put it into that clear words, but I always know if I'm sharing art with either of you Mm -hmm. or a lot of different people I like to collaborate with, like you guys know what I'm going for rather than as he put, inflicting your taste upon someone.
0: <laughs> so I think now it's time for you to share with us what you have brought today from a creative perspective. Yes. I have written for you a Shakespearean
2: sonnet from the perspective of a Louvre guard guarding the Mona Lisa. Mm, call me Medici. I'll put up my feet. Let's go. All right. All right. Oh, how the days pass in a whirling blur. I stand a rock amidst the current's pull. The constant stream that stands in front of her. That gaze but miss the beauty there and full. See cameras flash on smiles wide and bright. A thousand different voices fill the air. In company throughout the day and night. She sits alone and smiles soft and fair. To know the secret that she hides away, I feel takes more than just a passing glance. A sentinel am I on guard today a solid stone observing this strange dance. For just a moment they look on her face, yet lifetimes could be spent upon her grace.
0: That was a sonnet, y'all. That was like iamic pentameter. The, whatever the couplet is, like A, B, A, B, C, C, you nailed it.
2: (laughs) There's something very funny to me about taking a very rigid, formal, sophisticated poem structure and writing about like a guy standing in a place all day.
0: Shakespeare would love it. He would love it. That guy wants more goofs and gaffes than we give him. We're like all highbrow about him, and he's like, I put fart jokes into my <laughs> Did all miss place? the fart jokes. I
1: spend so much of my time <laughs> at museums looking at the guards and trying to figure out what they're thinking about and what their life is like. So this is just exactly what I wanted. Could you imagine? The area around the Mona Lisa is
2: crowded. Everyone like nose to butt, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't give you time to really look and observe. You're you're rushed through. You're you're seeing it. It, it feels like a checkmark. Oftentimes, that you're just supposed to go see it. And maybe I'm being cynical. I've never gotten the chance to go and see the Mona Lisa in person. So maybe it's different when you're there. But there there's a sense of. Um, I hear stories of people saying they were disappointed. She was smaller than they expected. It's not really worth it. You can kind of skip it. It's overhyped. And I think all that's true from a tourist perspective. If you're trying to do a lot of things when you're visiting, then you're going to spend a lot of time to see one painting and you're missing so much of what else is there to see. But it's sad because you don't get the time to really sit with Mm. it and observe it and get to experience it the way you can a lot of other paintings in museums.
1: I have been lucky enough to see a lot of famous art In my time and almost always the really, really, really famous pieces, you know, like the pieces that get the crowds and you have to kind of get your little ticket to go see are not the ones Mm -hmm. I have emotional
2: experiences around or get to really like wander with my thoughts. I think having researched the Mona Lisa so much, I am actually looking forward to hopefully sometime in the future getting to see her in person I think knowing the context will make it a different experience. So,
1: this has been in the works for a minute mm-hmm. after Jamie and I recorded the Hot David episode. <laughs> <laughs> also known as Michelangelo. Also known as our episode on Michelangelo and the statue of David, who I learned from Jamie is not
2: merely a hot man whose name is David. <laughs> He's just also a hot man whose name is David
1: We got A lot of requests Like a lot mm-hmm. of requests for hot David Art Shirts, merch, mugs
0: <laughs> And Jamie Delivered Not only not only did she deliver on Vaporwave Hot David, we got Vaporwave Mona Lisa and Vaporwave Achilles
1: Which was so cute It, it went thusly <laughs> Jamie made us Hot David, and I went, ooh-ooh, can we have Achilles? Because I love Achilles and Patroclus. And Jimmy was like, bam, here you go. And then nothing was said, and you were like, oh, by the way, I did Mona Lisa. Which was <laughs> the most exciting mm-hmm. thing ever, because immediately, Tracy and I were like, so you, so you have to tell us about... Mona Lisa. Yeah,
0: we're like, obviously, you have to come back and do a whole episode of Mona Lisa so we can justify this amazing piece of art as merch alongside Achilles and Hot David.
2: It was really fun to work on. I love the idea of vaporwave. It's just so much fun, that bright color. So I tried to make this as bright and colorful and fun as I think this podcast is. So go ahead and check it out on the Instagram and at the Willing and Fable website. You can check it out at WillingandFable.com/slash merch. Here's the thing.
1: And this is a secret, so Jamie, cover your ears. I want a Vaporwave Sappho so bad, so I need everyone to get loud at at Jamie. (gasps) Wait, now I really want that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Okay, Jamie, you can come back
2: now.
0: Oh, a secret has been shared. I wish I knew what it was. (laughs) All right, so now you've done all the work for our episode, it's time for us to turn it around. So we'll start with Rowan, give you a little bit of time to think, Jamie. Rowan, why don't you tell me something good? My
1: something good is Future Tense. Immediately after we're done recording, because I'm in Pennsylvania, we're all going to go play my friend's Mm -hmm. game. Uh, Alice is missing. Uh, Friend of the pod. Yeah, Spencer Stark has been on the podcast. He and I covered Orpheus and Eurydice, and I get to be with all my friends from our Pathfinder campaign that Jamie organized so rarely. And I really like to run a one shot. So everyone was just like into it. It's, it's coming out as a movie and it just got like, Casey was really enthusiastic about it. The game, which let me be like enthusiastic and offer to run it. And it was just so nice. So I'm like, I I don't know if I have the word for, like, giddy and anxious, but also, like, proud aunt vibes. Like, I'm so proud of Spencer. Right. And sh- I want to do his game justice because I've never run it. And, like, run it. It's not a game with a DM. Facilitated mm-hmm. it. I've never mm-hmm. facilitated it. And it's a, dr- it's a drama. I can't
0: think of a better group. So <laughs> it's going to be awesome.
1: And Casey, who everyone will also know from the pod, is hosting. And she texted me just before this she was like i got my hue lights set up we're doing dramatic lighting (laughs) we're all ordering takeout like this is friends gaming together in person
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: so i'm so excited also i'm sorry in advance you guys might cry love
0: you i love friends who make me cry i love crying no one brings the tears and the emotions quite like spencer stark (laughs) oh truly hey tracy what's your something good My something good is very simple. It is just that Rowan is in town, and I've got to see her in person a bunch, and it has been so lovely, and we are planning a little mini writer's retreat for us to work on some writing, and I am, like, counting down the days. I'm so excited.
1: I'm not saying that we have been working on something, but I'm not not saying it.
0: And now it is finally your turn. Jamie, tell us something good. I am looking forward
2: to finally moving into my new apartment. I have been- In the process of moving for the last week, so things are slowly taking shape, but I've been painting, putting up uh, wallpaper, and just getting the place all set up, so I am very excited to have my new place fully set up, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be really nice. You have such good taste. (laughs) I have uh, a loud taste, (laughs) so it's a viewer's, viewer's choice if it's good or not, but I appreciate that
1: minimalism is over everyone oh yes it's maximalism or nothing yeah yeah
0: we don't have the closet space for minimalism (laughs) i just don't have the energy for it i love my knickknacks too much give me a tchotchke or give me death is what i've always said famously (laughs) always said
1: that is what she's always said okay i hate to do this i'm never the one to do this but we have to end the podcast so i can go hang out with you guys
0: yeah (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for having me. Thank you for coming, Jamie. We really, really appreciate it. We love you, babe one. <laughs> thank you so much, unnamed babe. And thank you all, you delightful babes, for listening to this podcast. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for the willing and fable podcast this episode was written and produced by tracy harrison and rowan hall that's me our logo is by jamie harrison and our music is by taylor ash if you ever want to watch or read what we're reading head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch or find us at willing and fable on instagram twitter and tiktok to join the discussion we hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willy and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.
0: of twenty twelve. The modus twenty twenty (laughs) one. It does. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna
2: circle back on that one.